Hi everyone, thanks for listening to another episode of Learning Out Loud. Today our guest is David Marquet, a retired U.S. Navy captain and author of the best-selling book, Turn the Ship Around, a true story of turning followers into leaders. The book details David's time as captain of the USS Santa Fe and the lessons in leadership he unearthed there to bring the ship from one of the Navy's worst rated to their top by retention and operational standings. We discuss with David these lessons, as well as several others that will be included in his next book. Let's jump right into the episode. So um, this nerd here is me. <laughs> the picture was taken in 1976. And uh, it's the math team. So you guys are in statistics. You may have been on, were you the guys on the math team and you were in high school? I wasn't. Uh, I did oh, some of that. You such a good time. So as you can see, we're a big party group, not really. <laughs> and uh, one of the problems, uh, so there were a couple of problems. First of all, 70s, were it was a dismal time. And um, we were in the Cold War, and I really was, uh, no one knew who was going to win. It was a big deal. Uh, I felt passionately about the values of Western civilization and democracy and all that. Well, what's a geek to do? If you're going to go in the military, <laughs> I want to do my part. You go submarines, submarines hide from people. So, so I was this, I always felt a little bit out of place in the military. I was born in Berkeley, California. I was this left-handed introvert. Uh, submarines were great for me. I mean, I really fit in pretty well there, but sort of as the milit standard, typical military person, I felt a little out of place. So as a result, I was always the guy asking like, well, why are we doing this way? Why, like, what, like, and I also felt like there's a very strong do-what-you're-told culture. Um, that's the brutal way that I describe it. A more um, uh, nuanced way might be describe it as the leaders decide the what and the team decides the how. That's the best you can get. Hey, I'll tell you what to do. You guys figure out how to do it. And the structure is limiting. Uh, first of all, it it uh, demotes the thinking of the team in the how. So when we think about thinking and decision-making, I used to think about it like, oh, well, decision-making is all the same, but it's not. There's a whole there's a lot of nuance in decision-making, like a decision, quote, how are we going to load a torpedo is cognitively less involved and less impactful than should we load a torpedo or which torpedo, like, are we going to load a torpedo? And so when you think about decision-making, I now I think about, well, what kind of decisions are we getting people to make? And there's a time for how, but there's also time to raise your head up. I, I kind of view it like I'm down, I'm looking down, I'm focused on how, like I'm running a 10K. How am I going to get to the end? Something like that. But you may trip and twist your ankle. And now you got to go back to, should I run this tank? Like, is, is it time for me to pull the plug? And we have sort of a can-do ethos, and we always want to go, no, we got to make it to the top of the mountain. But of course, we all know teams that should have turned around on Everest per persevered, went to the top. Oh, how admirable. Great, but they died on the way back down because they went past the self-imposed deadline when they should have turned around. So they should have they should have shifted from how to what. Basically, we it's more nuanced than this, but basically it's either how or what, why, or whether. Should we do this versus how should we do this? So for me, uh, so I came up through the ranks with the definition of leadership that looked like this. This is a picture of my book. 
1977, when I went to the Naval Academy, and it says leadership can be defined as directing the thoughts, plans, and actions of others so as to obtain and command their obedience, confidence, respect, and their loyal cooperation. And this is a perfect definition of how we practice leadership. It's perfectly honest. And you might not like it, but you got to give credit, credit for telling it like it is. And it perfectly describes what we call sort of derisively now command and control leadership. But this was the leadership. This was the definition for World War II. It's the definition for most of the Cold War. So it can't be that bad. There's got to be a lot of good to it. In any event, the scary thing is I was really good at this. I would they I would see the problem first, or at least I would think so, because no one else would vocalize it to me. I would see the solution first, or at least I would think so. I would see a better way of doing things. And then when I got to be in charge of things, I then told my team, oh, no, no, don't do it like this, do it like this. And we were successful, at least in the short run, when I was in charge. So therefore, I was a good leader because I made good decisions and got the team to do what I decided we needed to do. And I got promoted and made me a submarine commander. And that's when I really had a chance to try something new. I, I took over a submarine at the very last minute after being trained for one ship, 12 months, I, I went to another ship. And it was uh, the worst performing ship. This is what you want in life. You think you don't, but I always said any number divided by zero is going to be big. So it's the worst performing ship or the worst morale, and we can just regress to the mean. I look like a genius. <laughs> that's that. true. That's yeah, true. Yeah, but I did better than that. And <laughs> basically, it was by getting the team using linguistic hacks. And I don't always tell the story this way, but using linguistic hacks to get the team out of how thinking and elevate them up into what thinking. And mm -hmm. at the simplest description of what we achieve, uh, I think that's pretty, that's about as close as you, you can get. And the result was a 100% retention. Every sailor who had a chance signed on to stay in the Navy. Uh, we got the highest score in the history of the Navy ever for operating the ship. 10 of the officers subsequently migrated through all the ranks to become submarine commanders. So I am really uh, enthusiastic, zealous, some people <laughs> about this idea that we, um, we program teams in a way which um, it's like putting a boot on your car, I guess. It's just crimps their thinking and then we're frustrated because like oh where's the creativity where's the innovation and, oh i'm so my brain's going 110 miles an hour but like everyone else seems to be doing like parked in the parking lot. and the problem is you we put them there we booted the cars but it's not what we meant yeah i mean that it's kind of like everyone's building highways and cars that work well on highways and then no one's going off-roading and everyone's wondering why, like, why is everyone on the same trajectory? Um, so could you tell us a little bit about what are some of like the specific linguistic hacks that you were using to get people out of that paradigm? Yeah. 
So the first is, if you, it starts with you, if you give someone instructions, if you, if you basically tell them the what, it implies their job is simply to fill in the how. If you tell them, we're going to launch, we're going to make 737 Max a product of this company, you guys figure out how to make it happen. They're going to do that. If you say, we're going to build safe, uh, environmentally compliant, high-performance diesel engines, you guys go figure it out, uh, people will, then they're stuck in the house. If we had a scandals at the VA, and they said, hey, you got to get everybody, here's the what, get everybody on a two-week waiting list or less, and we're going to tie big money, big bonus money to it. Guess what? They're going to figure out how. Often, however, in, in, in a high command and control uh, structure like the VA or Volkswagen or Boeing, when that happens, this is where we end up taking shortcuts, ethical wrongdoing. It's, it's the equation for achieving ethical wrongdoing is to give people a, a, a impossible goal in a command and control structure because it's the command and control structure that allows people to then say, I was doing what I was told. In a structure where people aren't told what to do, you don't have these problems. You might have other problems, but you won't have this problem. So the, uh, so the first hack was I would stop telling people what to do. The second hack is I invited the team, don't, get, don't ask for permission. Now you might think that I'm gonna follow that with ask for forgiveness, not right. You don't want that when you're running a nuclear powered submarine. You don't want that when you're running a company. So we, we would say, don't ask for permission. Just tell me your intention. Say, I intend to. This was a super powerful hack. And it, it injects, it, it elevates the person out of their head into your head. Okay, well, if I'm going to go to my boss and tell him what I intend to do, I need to be thinking like my boss. And everything happens through language. It always starts with language. Too many people are trying to do change programs by, oh, we'll change mindset and then behavior will follow. This is incorrect approach. This is, we don't say, oh, I really think I'm a fast runner and then I become a fast runner. That's not how it works. I mean, it's just laughable. So what we really wanna do is to change our actions and then the mindset then grows into it. So another example is I, I hear the word they a lot. Now we had 150 people in a submarine, which is like pretty small. Um, company, but I still heard of the, I heard they they operations talked about engineering like they engineering talked about supply like they the officers talked about the chiefs like they the enlistment talked about the officers like they we had all these like segmented days and I got angry one day now in mind we're like sharing bunks on a submarine part of the crew is sharing bunks not at the same time but. <laughs> And I just I said, there's no they on Santa Fe. That was my submarine, which rhymed, was very convenient because again, research shows humans believe things that rhyme. And uh, so you had to say the word we. And it was a really interesting thing happened. Did anything happen in one day? No. Anything happened in a week? No. Anything happened in a month? Yeah. Six months? Yes. Because now when everyone started saying we, we sends a signal to your brain. This person's on my team. I collaborate with them and I can trust them as opposed to they not on my team I compete with them and I can't trust them so that feeling came as a result of repeated use of the behavior 
So I feel like a runner after I run 100 times, some, some big number of times. Uh, so, so people started, so people say, hey, I intend to, then they feel empowered. We then give lectures on empowerment. So the language, the behaviors always come first. And so the trick is, this is where people, I think sometimes, um, this is the hard part, is they'll say, um, uh, one of the activities that we use with our clients is fill in the following sentence. I, I would like a culture that is more blank. You can like, so just like, what do you guys think people fill in at that point? Innovative. Yeah, I want more innovative. What else? Collaborative, respectful. Collaborative, respectful, inclusive. And then I say, okay, what would it sound like if we were writing a sitcom and there was a team meeting in this collaborative, whatever, just pick one culture. And then now people have to put words to it. And then and then you practice some of those words. So that's that's number one. Another thing which this sort of hints to, uh, which is what my newest book is about, is this idea of getting out of your own head. We all are, um, I don't know what the number is, but I would say 95% of bad decisions are not have don't have anything to do with um, uncertainty or absence of the facts. They have to do with emotional distortion. And the emotional distortion is highly consistently in the same direction. Me protecting me. Me wanting to make me look good. Uh, me wanting to prove that the decision that I made last month that we should start a podcast is a good decision. So therefore, no matter what the data says, I'm going to keep saying, no, well, you know, we just need to wait a little longer, whatever. So, so there's, we think that results because of two things that are happening. Number one, we have this defensive wiring. Just because of the way the species evolved, we think of, we think there's this thing called our ego, which we think is like a real thing that we have to protect. And the wiring for hurt feelings is scaffolded on top of the wirings for actually hurt fingers and things. So if I pound my finger or someone didn't invite me to a party, it's the same neuron network that lights up. So an aspirin, which helps with my finger, also helps me get over the fact that I didn't get invited to the party. So that's so that's wiring. So you can't really do much about that. But that's also coupled with what we call a self-immersed perspective, which is I view the world from here. It's a, this is a default perspective. I'm I'm sometimes we say we're locked behind our eyeballs, and I say things happen to me, and I measure everything as a distance from here, like they're far away. Yeah, they're far away from me, but we don't say from me because it's just, of course, it's always me it's just me and um let me change my sorry i'm going to change my background there and and that you can do something about so that's like the oxygen for the fire and the things you can do there are you can imagine you're someone else somewhere else or sometime else and what happens here is now where i'm getting out of my uh, immersed view. So I can I can imagine, for example, I'm 
on the balcony looking down at me giving a speech or I'm myself in the far future looking back at today. And that and so that takes the oxygen away and now you solve these emotional problems. We've actually talked about that like a few times that I always find it helpful um, like talking to other people about similar problems that I might have myself and like giving them advice on like a similar problem that they have. And it's always easier to tell someone else the advice rather than just taking your own advice. So it's, I, well, of course, yeah. And, then, and that, so there's lots of studies which prove that what you're saying right there is actually grounded in science. And we see, we see, um, and we, we can see their problems so clearly. Yeah, uh, we joke. My wife and I always joke. You know, it's so easy to raise other people's kids. Like, oh, <laughs> you did this? Or why are you doing that? Why are you getting let them have a second piece of cake? Ah, da, 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 da. <laughs> and then, uh, so when you adopt that mental perspective on yourself, it will help you get clear about how do you like what do you look like to the rest of the world. Right. I mean, I think I think what you were able to do is kind of take these abstract ideas that everyone kind of encounters or knows in the back of their mind and bring it down to a really concrete level and kind of face the music in that sense. So how are you able to put together this? Because obviously you're saying all this is backed by science and you know it has a real basis. So how are you able to take all these things that you are observing and make it into a sort of style or protocol that you were able to communicate to your team? Well, if... You got the wrong impression if you think I had some like science based. Let's do the research says this. We should, uh, that's not what happened on the submarine. It was simply chaos, fear, and experimentation. And I just knew that if I kept going down the path of telling people what to do, we we're all going to die. So that was a bad outcome. I was trying to avoid. Um, so, and I had seen this intent um, just for a couple months of my life, about fifteen years earlier, and I. And I I knew that I had to stop telling people. I knew I had to change, break the pattern, the programming of telling people what to do, even though they expected the captain to tell them what to do. And so that was that was the hard part. It, it, but it goes back to that study, which is, what would it sound like if yeah, I just kept, um, I have a secret, which um, I'll let you guys know, I'll let you in on, which is there's this book called How to Talk to Kids So Kids Will Listen, How to Listen So Kids Will Talk. Long title, genius book. And it took all these concepts about child raising. I had little kids at the time, about child raising, and it put it into language. So it would say things like, uh, accept, accept your um, kids' emotions. Okay, great. I read 500 books from blog posts that would say that. I didn't learn anything. I already knew that. And then it would say in this book, and here's how you can do that with words. Um, like give them their fantasy, give them their fan, like give them their fantasy, give, give them their wish and fantasy. How, and so, and, and, and it will give, give you words. So this changed my life with my kids. And I had a copy in the top secret safe in the captain's stateroom because they didn't want my crew to think I was thinking thought of them as children. But <laughs> think about, think about the book that was so powerful for me was it kept putting into words. I had two books. I had this book 
and I had Stephen Covey Seven Habits. And that was also a super powerful book for me. And then I actually had three books. And then I also had um, Collins and Porus's Built to Last, which talks about mechanisms. And I was always saying, okay, so here's a mechanism. So let's say the mechanism is um, uh, spend 5% of your time on an innovative project, project not linked to anything that company's currently doing. Okay, well, how do you, great, but how do you actually implement that? What does it sound like in a company or a mechanism? Get people to speak up, mechanism, take care of your people. Like, what does that actually sound like? And I kept doing this translation between these three books where I took had those mechanisms, the concept, the principles from Covey, and then this language anchoring. And it wasn't like I, I used the language necessarily, but it just gave me the... Um, the the feeling that I could turn it into language. And then I would, and then when we were talking to the crew, instead of saying, oh, you're all screwed up in how you think about this, I would just say, hey, why don't you try try saying it this way? Try saying it this way. Next time say it this way. And let's see how that goes. And that feels very light touch when you say, oh no, you need to be, you need to act more empowered. That feels like judgmental and we can get defensive, but if I just say, hey, you next time you come to me with a, something like this, you want to load torpedoes, instead of saying request permission to load torpedoes, say I intend to load torpedoes and tell me why, uh, why it's the right thing to do. And it feels very light touch. And so it was easier for them to do it and it was easier for me to practice it and then worry about mindset because that all happened afterwards. And by the way, I didn't have time for mindset. Like we would be dead. If I try to change mindset, I said we just change how we act right now. Yeah, I like that a lot in terms of the mindset is the output of whatever actions you're taking. So if you want to feel like a runner, you have to actually do the running. Yeah. So another another really great book is Carol Dweck's Mindset, mm -hmm. and where she talks about growth and fixed mindsets, mm -hmm. uh, and, and uh, it's it's a brilliant. Uh, book and really it's one of the few books which I can tell you what it was in the book but it comes a little bit to be shy of saying well now how do I implement like what do I actually do I mean it gives you some hints about okay as a parent don't praise your say you're a wonderful ballerina say you worked hard like praise the behavior not a characteristic but you kind of need to tease that out a little bit and I think um to operate at the practical level, it's the it's it's these things. The other thing was like going back to your thing about we learned certain things in high school and college, and then there's a different set of skills. Is the way we talk is basically people talk the way they talk in high school. The the language does not seem to mature beyond that. And it's like, well, I know how to talk, so how could I possibly continue to learn? And then in college, I never had, I mean, I took an English class, English class, but it wasn't, it wasn't anything like, so let's try an experiment, ask a question this way, ask it this way, what do you notice, that kind of thing. Yeah, it's a very good point. I think that we focus on trying to build skills in a lot of different areas past high school about, you know, work ethic or working productively and noticing patterns between certain things, but no one really talks about Besides, how can you write better? How do you able to communicate in a more effective way, especially verbally? So that's, that's a really good point. And I yeah, think I guess there is writing. Yeah. I think like writing for business, like that's somehow different than writing for 
something else. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, like, I think we do learn how to, in some classes, like communicate in business or communicate in the quote unquote real world, but not really with other people and, and to other people. And that's probably one of the most, like you're saying, one of the most important things. So I think it's right. it's more focused on like yourself and the way that you explain it. And it's not like, it's not doing enough of focusing on how is the other person receiving it. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I you know, I, I was told things like active listening. I don't know about you guys, but when I say, you know, I'm pretty pissed off about this. And the person says, Oh, so I'm here. You're pissed off about this. <laughs> effing <laughs> It's a really annoying. I, I, to me, I find it really annoying. We so we talk about that a lot. Yeah. Maybe I'm just have thin skin. I don't know. But anyway, um, no. So yeah. So well, there was one. There was one thing though. One thing that was really important for us is the shift from deterministic. To, I call it deterministic to probabilistic thinking. So you guys, mm. the statistics guys, um, live this. But I'm guessing. That you still are stuck in, in in deterministic language. So, for like we were, so someone comes up to me and says, "Hey, I got an idea." I say, "Oh, will that work? Are you sure? Is it safe?" Binary, 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 binary question. Uh, we don't. We all want to wear our hard hats, right? Binary, self-affirming question. Not really even a question, more like a statement. And, and this is all to get this, and it's not that helpful. Is the COVID vaccine safe? Binary question, unhelpful. You learn nothing. So on the summary, we would always try and say, put the word how, how, how in front, how safe is it? How sure are you? And also when people would raise their hand and say, hey, I think we might be um, about to make a mistake, we let them give a probability. So uh, one of the things that holds people back is, oh, well, if I stopped the process and it turns out it was unnecessary because things were okay, then I'm going to be labeled as wrong and therefore it's going to be on me. So I don't want that. So therefore I won't raise my hand. But when you say it's probability, say, Hey, I think we might be shooting. We're going to send the missile to the wrong target. I'm only 2% sure, but if we do, we kill the wrong people. Then we go through the checks, double check the targeting information, check the orders, correct target. Oh, thank, thank goodness. I was 98% right. But now we check. Now we know. So we don't then say, "Oh, you were wrong," because it make sense. So um, I would. I, I was a physics major, so I did quantum mechanics and and that kind of thing. So I kind of see the world through this kind of a little bit more of a statistical, probabilistic lens. Like the only thing I'm really sure about is I'm pretty sure the sun's going to come up in the east and it's going to set in the west. Everything else. It's less than one point zero. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, we we've talked a lot about kind of separating process versus outcome, and it's the same thing. As if you play enough poker hands, you know, you should be betting if you have pocket aces, but you know, you don't know if there's going to be a, a four or a kind on the board. So there, are, uh, yeah, and then I think we're talking about that a lot in terms of yeah. Uh, have you read Andy Duke? Andy Duke's got a couple of good books on this. Yeah, I have them on my list. I haven't read them yet though. I, I listen yeah, to a Andy, podcast Andy with Duke, her. a poker player. She's got yeah. um, she most she came out with Quit Thinking and Best is the one is the yep. book I'm thinking. Good book. Yep. Exactly about that. 
Yeah. You just and you got you, and and so you bet big, you lose, you don't go. You made the right decision. I, I do this with executive teams. I say, you buy a lottery ticket. Is that is that a good decision? Either way, <laughs> no. What does that depends if you win. No, the decision's got to be measured based on the moment, the information you have when you make the decision, not twelve months later. So, um, uh, yeah, we have fun with that. So if they say, hey, oh yeah, it's a good decision. I say, okay, so imagine that your one of your subordinates comes to you and says, I'm going to put my entire budget. We're just going to buy lottery tickets. What do you think of that? Oh, no, that's terrible. So it wasn't a good, that's not a good decision. Yeah, it's kind of a good shorthand, just kind of extrapolating out. Like if everybody did what you were doing, or if you spent yeah. all of your time doing what you're talking about, would that right. stay? If you did this every time, if you always chose B, is that a good decision? Yeah. Yeah, that's good. I like that. So how did you, uh, I guess, realize that things that you were figuring out with the submarine team would also be able to be applied to any other group of people? It's people. At, you know, everything I was experiencing on the submarine, well, I had, there was a bit of a leap of faith that, okay, these are all people. I mean, all the problems we had were people problems. They weren't submarine problems. Mm -hmm. It's like, is Harry Potter about Hogwarts or is it about the people they just happen to go to Hogwarts? We just happen to go to our Hogwarts, happen to be the submarine, but we're just people with the same flaws and attributes and brilliance and everything that, that, that other people have. And so... Uh, when I started giving talk, I mean, it just became immediately evident. And, and I'm sure you guys are special in your own special way. But every company I go to, they always, I mean, you want people want to feel special. Oh, we're, you don't understand. We're special. We don't run the something we do. We run a coal fire power plant. Oh, wow. That's so much different. <laughs> we make bottled water or, you know, we, we're the um, app division for a bank. And then as soon as you look at what they're dealing, so oh, tell me what you're dealing with. Well, and it's all the same. Right. And the hierarchy is the same. Uh, that's how I see it. Maybe it's overly simplistic, but I see it. It's much more the same than it is different. It's like, like you, like human DNA and gorilla DNA is like 98% the same. That That's kind of how I see it. Oh, well, look how much different a gorilla is. Yeah, but two eyes, two hands, <laughs> one brain, prefrontal cortex, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, it's a lot to say. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, picking up on all the same same patterns, so. Yeah, so it was, so it was the same. And then now we have 10 years of experience with the same and wherever you go in the world like india i've gone everywhere india africa china asia i guess that's asia anyway <laughs> south america i mean I, the way i kind of see it is like the starting point sometimes is a little bit different like in terms of cultural um proclivities towards um bias for action or speaking up or these kind of things yeah but they're really kind of nuanced 
um, variations on a theme rather than radical differences. And then when you say, well, what do you want? It doesn't matter what country you're in. Like, describe the workplace you want. Same answer everywhere. Could you tell us a little bit more about, you said that the new book is more about like, everyone has this ability to yeah. be outside themselves. But most of the time you're thinking about how does it relate to me? How is this coming through my eyes, my experiences? Right. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so if, um, let's say you've had a uh, bad experience, you had a bad, bad experience recently. Uh, it could be something serious or maybe something small, like uh, let's say I got cut off in traffic. And I ask you, hey, tell me about it. Most people will start with, they'll start recounting the story from an I perspective. Well, I was driving and then this person zoomed up behind me and then over the other lane and then zoomed in front and that happened to me. And so this is, this is the I perspective. Uh, and um, researchers have can assess, they, they, we can hook up brain waves, we can hook up heart rate monitors, and we can measure the amount of anxiety and rumination and stress and uh, cardiovascular reaction that you're having in the, as you're telling that story. And it never gets better. You, you never resolve the fact that you got um, treated badly by this other human being. It's just it's unresolvable. So then we say, so researchers then hit upon saying, well, what? Tell, tell me the same story as if you were a fly on the wall watching you, or take a few steps back and tell the story. And uh, using and use the word uh, he, she, or you, or your name. So now I say, okay, well, David was driving along, and the driver came up behind him, and so on. And when we look at people's emote, the brain, what parts of the brain light up? and how the cardiovascular system responds, it responds differently. And it responds, instead of responding like it's a threat that I need to avoid, it's more like a challenge that somehow I'm, I'm excited to overcome. It has, it has hints of that. And people have less anxiety, and then they may, uh, and there's a greater opportunity to, to think it through differently, like, well, maybe they were racing to the hospital, or maybe uh, it was really important for them to get to work that day, and uh, yeah, they got up and their alarm went off, but they're, they, have, they have a sick kid, or like, like something like that, and it just becomes easier to do that, so um, you can distance yourself in space, so you can like fly on the wall. I'm imagining myself on the balcony. On the balcony is a good one, looking down at me. Uh, you can imagine yourself in time. Like we'll say, hey, how do you think you're gonna feel about this tomorrow? Eh, it won't matter. But right now, it's really important that you did me wrong. And, um, and and these are really vehicles to get to psychological separation. Like I'm looking at myself from a bit of a distance, like. Marley was saying it's easier to solve other people's problems, and it feels that's what it feels like. So uh, the other thing it does it elevates us out of how thinking up to what, why, and what thinking. And so when you're in a project, 
we see organization after organization after organization where the what thinking happens up here and the how thinking happens down here and people aren't questioning should we actually be doing this and even and if they ask the question they get stuck they just can't see an answer to it so uh, like bezos when he uh he had a great job on wall street he's making good money he had this idea to start a book on the internet selling or, or a company on the internet selling books and so he imagined himself at 80 looking back. Uh, there's another benefit of this, which is when I'm here looking forward, should I quit my job and start a company? The decision is in front of me. And it feels scary because it's a change. When I imagine myself at the end of my life looking backwards, it's more about regret. It's like, oh, and, and we regret the things we didn't do. I regret the hike I didn't go on. I regret the company I didn't start. I don't typically regret the things that we did. So when I'm on the far side of the decision, looking back, it shifts me into a bias for action. So when you're running with your teams and you're doing a retrospective or you're getting feedback, this is, again, one of the tricks. You can say, hey, six months from now or a year from now, or if it's a big decision, maybe near the end of my life, and I look back to today, what do I wish? What does my 80-year-old David wish my today David would do about this? And it'll feel different and, and you'll come up with different answers, probably better answers than the ones you feel that you'll do today because today you're over anchored to the to your past. You're, well, I was the guy who decided we should make semi, or we should make memory chips. Therefore, making memory chips has to be the right answer. I like that a lot. I think that it really helps to simplify things because I'm just like running through certain decisions. I don't have like anything that specific, but I'm running through how I would make a decision now about like careers or just things along that nature. Um, and I feel like if I, I looked at it- It's perfect for that. Yeah, let, yeah. Me, let me know how you use it. Yeah. <laughs> what happens? Maybe you'll start the next Amazon. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, we'll give you we'll give you a percentage share for the- uh, Give me a percentage share. Yeah, don't just say that if you don't mean it. <laughs> But so yeah, I, that's that's how we're trying to help people. Yeah. So I guess the the next next natural question there is if you can make that change, you know, as a leader, then what about the someone what about someone who's kind of lower on the rungs and they want to adopt that way of thinking, but the way that the organization is structured at this moment doesn't allow them to use that. Yeah, it's always about safety. It's safety for you and safety for your boss in this case. So um, small and choice makes it safe. So if I go to my boss, and I, I learned this the hard way, if I go to my boss and I say, hey, I know you just told us to turn left, but I really think we should turn right. Your boss doesn't hear anything except you think you're smarter than me. And it becomes a conflict of authority and it becomes uh, disloyal, and we lose the um, uh, the content just gets wiped out by those emotional things. So you go to your boss and you would say, hey, look, this is your call. We're going to support you 100%. We can turn left in 10 minutes like you told us, and we're going to do it. Would you like to know how we see it? Would or something like that. So it's choice. Would you like to know? They can say no. 
And just start with description. Description is a very, very small step. We don't start with, oh, we think you should turn right. Say, hey, let me tell you how we see it at, at our desk. Let me tell you what that you that we know that you might be surprised to hear. Let, let, let's, something like that. And so you're giving them a choice and you're making a very small step. And then they're like, okay, sure, I'll humor you. And then you can tell them. And you do that 10 times. And then you start to build up. Then they start to get comfortable hearing you. And you start to build up some credibility. Uh, and, it, and if they say, no, we're going to turn left. I, I mean, don't pester them forever, but it's, okay, great. Help me with my thinking. You know, how could I think through this better? Whatever. You may, they may be right. We'll see what happens in the long run. And then we go, okay, so it's description, uh, assessment, action. So then now we move to assessment. So here's how we see it. Here's what we think. We think this is happening because the client is unhappy, because world populations are changing, because whatever. Now it's scary because I can be wrong. It could be not because of that. It could be something else. But then we move on, finally move to action. Here's what we see. Here's what we think. So here's what we think we should do. Or here's what we think you should do. Or here's what I'd like permission to do. Or here's what I intend to do. Even better. Yeah, I think that, that framework overall makes sense without challenging anyone, like you're saying. You don't want to you know, have what you say be sequestered by how you're saying it. Yeah, and it's long, hard experience. Um, man, I guess looking back at a lot of my bosses really weren't that smart, but I really shouldn't have let them think I let them think that I thought <laughs> that's unfair. Yeah. Um, so how how can you kind of prepare a, a situation where like on the submarine, I'm sure there were a lot of situations that you had to make these rapid fire decisions as opposed to, well, let's stop and change about how we're expressing what we think. Yeah. So how are we able to get it to a point where it was kind of second nature and you can make sure that it's not going to impede whatever decision you have to make in a short Yeah, the secret is uh, we call vote first and discuss. Okay. Uh, if you start discussing something, uh, let's take a situation. We're in the middle, uh, we're getting ready to shoot a torpedo. And um, all of a sudden, like we're, we're, we think we're, we're chasing a submarine and we're about to shoot a torpedo. And then all of a sudden, we think we're hearing something else on the other side, which might be another submarine. So we don't want to shoot the first submarine unless we're shooting both submarines because that'll give us away. So we got to figure out really quickly is that other thing a submarine? Made up example. So, so you're sitting there in the control room, all of a sudden, second sub possible submarine. And the sub person puts a probability on it, 20%. And so I might, um, so I ask, so, so you don't say, so what do you think? Hey, weapons officer, you vote. Officer deck, you vote. Sonar officer, you vote. Because what will happen is the first person speaking will anchor the group. You especially don't say what you think. And it takes a long time. And we get an argument. So you just say, zero, we would say, we call it fist to five, zero to five. Zero to five, five, shoot, zero, don't shoot. And anywhere in between. So three means, I don't know, I don't really care. I don't have a strong feeling. 
just a five, shoot, don't shoot, boom. And the uh, three key officers would vote and I would look and I would say, hey, um, Justin, you got to, everyone's going five, five, and then there's a zero. So you look for the outliers and then you invite, hey, and maybe I'm already thinking, fine, let's just shoot. Like that's the action. Um, then I hear from the outlier. You want to hear from the out. So, hey, Justin, you got a zero. Tell us about that. Hey, here's what I think. Blah, 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 blah. Okay, great. Shoot. And I make a decision. But now I know what the people who think opposite me think. If I do it any other way, I'm only going to know what I think because that's going to get reflected back to me. So, again, like this is a, exactly how Boeing did not make the decision to launch 737 MAX. It was all coerced. It's basically coercive because, hey, we're getting behind Airbus. Everybody knew it. There was a lot of pressure on the team. The CEO was publicly talking about when that was going to happen. And um, so the whole thing was was not should we, but but how. And 346 people died. Right. So it's almost you can kind of do yourself from the start when you make it all about this is the gospel about what we have to do. In this case, it was, you know, the 737 max and then there's no questioning of that after it's just about the methods and the how and the actual boots on the ground stuff right and then we see that a lot and a lot of work a lot of organizations that have problems there was a, a, a bp refinery in ohio um a lot pretty close a lot closer to you guys than me that had an explosion. They were starting the plant up after a shutdown period. These are always the, the scary times, like the restarts. And they had one unusual situation that became two unusual situations, became multiple unusual situations. So they're now they're starting to start the plant up with all these workarounds and valve lineups and all sending um, fluids into tanks at, are not designed to hand and eventually you got to say we're not ready to, you know we're plants not ready shut it back down but that's not what happened it was like well how do we how do we keep persevering with our can-do spirit plant up and running because of course there's a lot of production pressure one of these plants you know you're talking millions of dollars a day of, of product that's not being made so there's a lot of pressure to get involved so going back to the other example, so let's say like the person holding the zero or just anybody who's in a, mon a mi minority group, sorry, yeah. um, and you go with the majority group, how do you still make that person's opinion and just that person in general feel valued and like their opinion actually did matter in the decision? Like maybe they're thinking, oh, he already had an opinion before we even did this. Yeah, so... You may, so let's go back to the shooting the torpedo. So normally if the submarine's on this side, we would shoot the torpedo from the other side, uh, which is, it will be quieter. But maybe if the new submarine is on the same side, but we don't know how far away it is, we take a more risk and we shoot it from the same side because it'll mask it from this other thing that we don't know what it is and there's more uncertainty in terms of how far away it is. Uh, so you may modify the action a little bit. Um, first of all, I, you don't need always need to go to the majority. It, you could have five fives and one zero and you say, great, we're going to do 
if you're the decision maker, you do the zero. It's not democracy. Businesses have to be bold. Democracies are designed not to be to be bold. They're designed to make incremental changes over over time. But um, that that's how you get like uh, GM and Mercedes and all these guys all of a sudden. Oh my gosh, we need to make electric vehicles. In the meantime, Tesla's out there doing it. It's because they had one person made a decision and that's what they were going to do. So there's this boldness that you need. But I think, uh, I guess that's it. I lost my train of thought. That's <laughs> okay. I have a question about going back to the probabilistic way of thinking. Yeah. What percentage of a business's or an organization's problems do you think either stem from or could be you know, mitigated by adopting more of the mindset and the action and the linguistics that you're talking about, that whole package. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. Yeah, I I do see. I I see in uh, there's snippets of really good practices. For example, um, when the Supreme Court writes a decision you will get the dissenting decision. When we in the, in the Pentagon were asked uh, an opinion on uh, something in, like invading Iraq at my level, there, were no, there was no room or time or the nuance for dissenting opinion. We, uh, we would sometimes add this, hey, this might be wrong if, uh, people didn't seem that interested in it, and I would get notes back. Oh, you're undermining your own argument here. Well, like, I'm not undermining an argument. I'm trying to lay out the complexities of the situation, of the assumptions that need to be true in order for this to work out. And then maybe that happened at some higher level. I I don't know. I'm hopeful, but probably not. And uh, there's this tendency to dumb dumb things down to make it fast and easy. So I think like um, expressing the, the opposite view in in your argument for moving forward is really powerful or if you're going to take a position. And I think the probabilistic, uh, I mean, like if you go to a hedge fund or private equity, these guys are making lots of money. The ones that are doing well already think this way. I would have, I have some of those guys as clients and Guy comes to me and he says, uh, somehow we got into talking about hiring. And he says, I, I, I hire physicists and teach them how to teach them economics. It's a lot easier than hiring, a, hiring an economist and, or a financial guy and teaching them probabilities. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean that makes sense. I think that, uh, yeah, I guess it's it's more about, do you think there's anything to do with the fact that there have to be a certain group or the right type of person in a particular organization, or can this apply to anyone? In other words, does the team have to be right first, and then this can be layered on, or can you just layer this on to any team and improve them to the point where it doesn't even matter what the starting point is? Layer on any team and improve them. The people are all the same. They say, oh, fire all these idiots, hire 10 new people, it's going to be the same people. 
Right. Like, this is a bigger, a bigger show. Unless you get LeBron James or Taylor Swift on your team, it's going to be. <laughs> and those people aren't looking for jobs. Right. So. Right. Yeah, they've they've got that covered. Can you tell us a little more how you you know you had this idea for yourself, the system that you used in the military, and then like so from there to you know bringing this into the business world and doing it for companies. How how did that kind of process work? Yeah. So um, I. I don't know, I'd probably give us a like a C minus grade on that transition. <laughs> um, I would say probably like A to maybe A plus on the book describing the, the thing. But what you really need there is um, compartment sized modules. The other thing I think we did really well was we had leadership nudges, which were 60 to 90 second chunks of information. Uh, but you want to productize the IP in little learning modules and then package it up and have some kind of a standard menu that people can walk away from. And you want to describe it in a language that they're using back to you. So if, if the CEO is saying, uh, we need to break down stovepipes, your tool helps break down stovepipes. So the CEO says, I want more cross-team collaboration, your tool. It's the same tool, of course, but break down cross-team collaboration. But when you go public on your website, you got to pick language um, that's mirrored by the organization. I got one minute. Okay. Um, yeah, is there anything else that you want to say? He said, hang on. Is there anything else that you wanted to... Um... He said hang oh, on. Oh, hang on a second. Yeah. No, I still got one minute and I got to go. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. sorry. Um, yeah, so is there anything else that you want to leave us with in terms of, you know, book recommendations, uh, you know, anything that people could go out and learn more about, you know, the system due to describing and how they can implement it for themselves? I would say the number one thing... That I would like people to do that we basically try to get them to do is to think about the words that they use. For 99.9% of people, 99.9% .9 of situations, the words they use are programmed in the same way that you program a computer. They're not choosing their words. They're not in control. They're just saying the same crap that they saw in high school or social media or who knows what. They're not choosing what they're saying and it's counterproductive it's not what they're doing. So they don't achieve what they want in life because they're not saying what supports they're trying to do in life and if you think about the words and say are these words achieving what i'm trying to get out here and very i'll leave you the last one i hear a lot of leaders say does that make sense so blah blah blah, blah, blah. we're going to turn left does that make sense so why did you ask, does that make sense? First of all, it's a binary question. Number two is it's biased in the way, direction that you just told them you were doing. Do you want people to do you want people to share dissenting opinion? Oh, yeah, I'm really interested in that. That's why I asked the question. You know, but does that make sense? Means that like somehow I'm like it's not a good way of asking it because you just get oh yeah, boss, yeah, boss, no, does that make sense? It's a sales tactic to get the bobbleheads going not what doesn't make sense. 
How does this seem wrong? What could be wrong with this? That's what you want to ask. So we're not asking what we want to achieve what we're trying to get out of life. That's what I, I would love for people to think more about that. Thanks for listening to this episode of Learning Out Loud. As always, if you have suggestions about future guests that we should have on, topics we should cover, or general improvements that we can make, please reach out at grzpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening.